0: Hi there. Welcome to Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist. I'm Kevin. I'm Aaron. And today we are reviewing Chapter 4. This is actually Part 2 of Chapter 4. So this is podcast, podcast Episode 5, but it's Chapter 4. Now what's confusing, Aaron, is prior to this, everything we had done in this podcast series, the podcast episode lined up with the chapter, but now this is Episode 5, but still Chapter 4. And
1: you know we're lawyers, so math generally is hard for us. Very confusing.
0: But anyway, part two, hopefully you checked out part one. We talked about valuation, price, liquidation preference, and pay to play. Today, we're going to talk about vesting, exercise period, employee pool, and anti-dilution. So the first topic I want to talk about here, it might be one of the most critical parts of a startup in general, of the first year of a startup, not necessarily just in a term sheet, but in the context of the the constitution of the startup itself, is vesting. We get a lot of clients who come in, Aaron, and they wanna own everything from the get-go. They don't wanna invest anything. They said, I've been working on this for a year, it's my idea,
1: I built this whole thing, I should own all of my equity up front. What are your thoughts on that, Aaron? I think if they have no desire in raising outside money, that's a fantastic idea. (laughs) However, if you wanna go get money from outside investors, good luck convincing them to invest in your company without vesting your equity. It makes no sense for um, an outside investor to put money into a company that the founder or any of the founders can walk away from with all of their equity vested already.
0: So let's use a more typical scenario. You've got three co-founders. They each own 33% 33% of the business, to make number simple, let's say they each own 30% of the business and there's an option pool or some fourth founder owns 10%. So those three guys own 30%. If one of the guys, like Aaron said, just decides to leave or heaven forbid something happens to him or her, 30% of your business just walked out the door. And people don't necessarily leave for bad reasons. A lot of time they leave just for life reasons. You know, their spouse takes a job in another city and they can't do this or they have young children and the startup, you know, average annual startup pay of zero isn't very conducive to raising young children or their mom gets sick and they have to move home to take care of her. We see these things happen all the time, right? People don't necessarily leave for bad reasons. Sometimes they do. Sometimes the right. founders get into right. it. And one guy you know, takes his ball and goes home with it. And we have to figure out how to
1: move forward. Well, worse than taking his ball home, he takes his 30% he, equity. He's 30%. Or maybe his IP. And that's right. another issue.
0: But you have
1: to. This isn't really
0: a negotiation point. This is you have to do. As Aaron said, if you're not going to raise money, then sure. Right. But if you're going to be a venture-backed startup, then by the definition of that, you're going to raise money. And and if you're if you're not going to raise outside money and you're the only founder. Right. But even if you're
1: not raising outside money, you got two founders. They, you both need to vest. The the concept of giving founders portions of the company's equity as compensation for their services is just that. You're compensating them for their services to the company, and it's supposed to be over a long period of time. And if you say, yeah, okay, you know, typically we're going to give you a four year vesting with a one year cliff, and so the thought is that that 30% of equity is covering a four year period. If you leave after the first year and you walk away with your four years worth of equity, that's a problem. That's a problem. And also when you
0: leave, the company needs that equity back so they can go motivate and incentivize someone else to do your job. Now recognize typical founder vesting is not like stock option vesting. Typical founder vesting is actually reverse vesting and that the founders own everything up front. So back to our scenario, scenario, Aaron, where we had three guys at 30%, three people at 30% and one you know, fourth person or option pool at 10%. Those three founders would own all 30% of that equity in the event that there was an exit, in the event that there's a distribution or a dividend. If they want to vote it. They want to vote it. Correct. So they actually own that. But it's under a restricted stock purchase agreement, or if you're doing an LLC, a restricted unit purchase agreement. But those shares are restricted. You want to explain what that means, Aaron?
1: Yeah. So essentially, what it means is, you know, in the context of regular, say, option vesting um, over time, you know, certain fractions of the option vest, and then the the recipient of that option has the right to exercise that option. With restricted stock purchase or restricted unit purchases, the way that it works is. The recipient gets it all up front, and then the company has the right to repurchase that equity. Um, and that right to repurchase the equity um, disappears in increments over time. So, you know, if it's if it's four year vesting with a one year cliff, um, the company will continue to have the right to repurchase all of the equity until they hit the one year mark. And then it's usually done monthly after that. And then you know monthly after that, it'll be done equal increments. So that company's right comes at a price
0: which is generally equal to the initial value at the time the stock was granted to the founders. And for tax reasons and a number of other reasons, we try and keep that initial value as low as possible. And as we briefly discussed in our last podcast, that would be par value. So in a scenario where a founder is receiving 3 million shares at... .0001 cents each. That means that founder is going to pay $3,000 for those shares. Best case, best practices are to actually reflect that and pay that. So let's just go ahead and add one more zero to that par value and make it .401. And so the founder's paying $300 for those shares. So that means if the founder leaves the next day and the company's repurchasing it, the company's gonna give that founder $300. Nuanced point, but it is best practices to actually write a check for that minor amount and send it in. But realize that is setting the value at which the company is going to repurchase those shares. Now, in a scenario where you have someone coming in later stage when the shares are worth more, the the exercise price, the company repurchase price, needs to be tied to whatever the purchase price is at that time. But in a restricted stock purchase agreement, the founders are buying the shares at a nominal price. And those shares are restricted such that if they leave, the company can repurchase them.
1: Just like for stock options, um, you know, for tax purposes, the equity needs to be priced at the fair market value at the time it's granted. And the
0: day you found the company or even a couple months afterwards when you probably haven't gotten any, you haven't made any significant progress, the company's not worth a whole lot. Now, I want to talk about the vesting schedule. You brought it up, Aaron, the typical vesting schedule this is probably using 80% of the startups we work with is four years with a one-year cliff. The one-year cliff means that nothing vests or in the reverse vesting situation, it's appropriate to call it is being released because it gets released from the repurchase option. Nothing gets released until after a year. So if you think about a four-year vesting schedule, there's 48 months in those four years. So one gets released each month. However, For the first 12 months, nothing happened. So on day one of month 13, so let's just say that the company started January 1st, 2017. We've got three founders. On January 1st, 2018, one-fourth of each of those three founders' equity or or common shares is going to be released from their restricted stock purchase agreement or from their repurchase schedule. And the remaining three-fourths will vest monthly over 36 months.
1: Now- I want to clarify that just because they're released from the company's repurchase right or repurchase option doesn't mean they're not restricted anymore. Yeah, that's a really good point. I want you to clarify that because I kind of glossed over that. For the most part, you know, when you're dealing with unregistered securities, um, the company has an obligation to make sure that those securities don't somehow get out into the public market. And so, what that means, by and large, is that companies have to maintain a right of first refusal on their equity. Yeah, that's a key point. They still are restricted, so they do get released from the purchase schedule,
0: but they're restricted in that you can't just go and sell them to your neighbor, right? And they're not publicly traded. Okay, so four years with a one-year cliff. I thought the book did a really good job of of bringing up that sometimes the company's been going for a while, they won't necessarily, you don't have to stick to that standard vesting schedule. Let me give you an example. Client of ours has been around since 2013. They've raised about 400 grand over the couple of years, but they pivoted. They got into a very competitive space. It didn't quite work out. They've pivoted into something very, very exciting. They just uh, signed on with 500 startups, right? Huge accelerator, one of the big three accelerators. Really exciting. 500 startups says, okay, great. We need all these basic incorporation docs and go ahead and send us your restricted stock purchase agreements for four years to one year cliff. The founders say, man, we've already been at this, at this for, for four years. We really need to do this. So I was able to work with the legal counsel at 500 startups, and they agreed to allow the founders to keep half of their equity and to vest the other half over two years, which I think is a very reasonable compromise for a business that's been around for four years, has a little bit in sales already, and has already raised some money. So there's, there's generally some room to maneuver there depending on the life cycle or kind of the uh, characteristics of your startup. So let's use that, Aaron, to move into the option pool all right so that's founders vesting so founders vesting is going to be in a restricted stock purchase agreement under a release schedule those are for guys who are day one or closer to day one than to significant value why aaron once let's just say the business is going and raising a couple million bucks why can't and we're going to use that and
1: go hire two or three more employees why can't we just give those employees restricted stock purchase agreements um you can however uh, there will be significant tax implications. And what I mean is if the company has significant value and you just decide to give you know, an employee, say, 10% of the company, which is very high, 10% of the company via restricted stock purchase agreement, the purchase price has to reflect the actual value of that 10%. And if you're giving that equity to an employee and they're not having to buy it, then that means that they're going to have to reflect on their income taxes, the value of that stock.
0: So let's put some real numbers there. So Aaron said, we're going to give someone 10%, which would be very high for a later stage. But early stage, if you're bringing on the key guy, I can see it happening. And let's just say your business is worth a million dollars. We'll keep it simple. So you give them 10% of your business or $100,000. Unless this person is buying that equity, if this person is going to write you a check for $100,000, you're fine. Because their value there, the the, the stock's worth $100,000, and this person paid $100,000. But typically, what companies try to do is just grant this person 10% of the company or $100,000. And then at some point in time, the IRS is going to come with their palms open and say, hey, you made $100,000 in compensation. I don't care if it's cash. I don't care if it's on paper. That's $100,000 in compensation employee or recipient you need to pay ordinary income tax on that and then you might be in a situation where the grantor has to pay payroll taxes on it so that's why you don't do that that's why instead you do option plans Mm -hmm. and an option plan is an ability is the ability for employees service providers they don't have to be employees independent contractors advisors to earn equity in the business but they earn the right to purchase equity At fair market value at the time of grant. So that's the real value there, right? You know, everyone's heard about the guy who did the murals for Facebook and became a multimillionaire because they gave him a couple thousand shares. When he did those things... They gave him an option. They gave him an option. Thank you. When he did those things for Facebook, the options might have been worth arbitrarily, I don't know, 10 cents each or a dollar each. He didn't want to buy them because one, maybe he didn't have the money. Two, If he does buy them, then what? Then you've got an illiquid asset that we don't know what's happening to the value. However, he gets to hang on to those options for a period of time. So now Facebook goes public, and those options are all worth $28 each. So he can say, I'm ready to exercise my options, or $169 each at this point in time. So he's got options for a dollar. Aaron just pulled the... uh, the actual trading price right now, so uh, worth about one hundred seventy dollars. He says, "Great, I'll go and buy my options for a dollar and turn around and sell them for one hundred seventy dollars. I just made
1: one hundred sixty nine dollars. He's to pay ordinary income taxes on that, but I think everyone's fine doing that." Now, you mentioned you can give options to employees, contractors, advisors, consultants. Chances are, this the guy that did the murals at Facebook was not an employee, so. Can he get incentive stock options? Yeah, so
0: that's a good point, Aaron. There's two types. There's incentive stock options or ISOs and non-qualifying or non-statutory stock options. People call them NQSOs or NSOs. Incentive stock options can only go to certain people and they have to be employees to begin with. So incentive stock options get better tax treatment, but they're very complicated from a tax perspective. Most options that are granted are non-qualified or non-statutory stock options. The plans that we draft and i think that any startup attorney is going to draft or any venture attorney are going to be going to allow the company to give either or because sometimes you want to compensate your your senior management with a better type of stock option again there's rules around it and if you break those rules you're screwed so you got to do it with care but yes let's make sure that the founders out there know to ask for this talk to your attorneys about whether you should be granting incentive stock options or non-qualified stock options If you're going to pick one or the other, this is not legal advice, but hypothetically, then you do non-qualified just because there are less restrictions on them. Okay, so an option pool, that's how options work, and that's why you do restricted stock early on, and once a company has value, which is usually... Probably when you're raising money for the first time. Maybe if you have revenues coming in. Once the company has value, you got to get away from restricted stock and flip to an option pool. So let's talk about how we see option pools in venture financing. Aaron, most of the term sheets that we come in for Series A financing, what sort of
1: option pool do they have? 10%. 10% before the deal or after the deal? Post. Post. Yeah, so it'll usually be a, uh, end up being a larger pool prior to the money coming in, but then once you get the money in, it gets diluted a, a little example, bit- Quick example. And it's 10%. If
0: we've got a 12.5% option pool, and then investors come in and buy 20% of the business, then everyone gets diluted by 20%. So 12.5% being diluted by 20% knocks it down to 10%. And so as Aaron mentioned, it's post
1: money valuation. Now, the other important thing is- You know, it really all depends. It's not universally 10%. It all depends on where the company is. So that's important. It depends on how many do they have a lot of the key employees lined up. You know, I think the book,
0: I also talked about this. I thought was neat. Let's just say you already have a pretty good team in place. If you go to the VC and say, hey, look, we don't need 10. I need six because here's who I need to hire. And typically at this level here's how much you have to give them, right? At this stage of the company, here's what percentage I need to give to these people to hire them. And we actually just put up a blog about this in June where we have a chart that's called How Much Equity Should I Grant to My Advisor? And it's really advisors, employees,
1: uh, contractors. And so we've given you guys some ideas on how much equity you should be giving out at each stage. If If you are a founder and you get an investor that's trying to get you to have a bigger option pool than maybe you want or you think you need, uh, on page 41, the entrepreneur's perspective, he says, listen, go into the negotiation with an option budget. List out everybody who you're going to have to hire and how much equity you think it's going to take to get them. And that'll be a really good way to justify to the investor having a smaller pool. So here's a trick that we do over here that we've been really successful with. We build the option pool
0: into the cap table prior to engaging the VC, prior to getting deep enough along to get a term sheet. Because the VC at some point in time will say, cool, send me your capitalization table, right? And so they're going to use that cap table to build out their term sheet. If you send it to them and you have a 10% or a 7% or 8% pool in there already, and they come back and they say, well, we want to get you to 10%, you can say, hey, look, we've already got this built out. It's not that big a deal. As Aaron mentioned, here's who I'm going to hire with that 7%. Do we really have to get to 10? We have had good success in the VC saying, okay, cool. Now, a lot of other VCs, astute VCs say, nope, you absolutely need to be at 10% here's why, or even 12% or 15%. It's not uncommon for VCs, especially in later stage or in, in distressed financing situations, to put in a huge option pool to re-up management. I see that from time to time, you know, say a business that's just gone through many rounds of financing because it took them a while to get their footing and now management does not have as much equities we'd like to see them have. Sometimes the VC will come in and say, "Hey, we're going to cram down the other investors, put in a twenty-five percent, thirty percent option pool, and immediately dole out ten or fifteen percent to management."
1: And on the other side of that, you know, without jumping too far ahead in the book, if you're a founder and you think, "Okay, well that's fine," they're they're wanting a twenty percent option pool. I'll, we'll take that option pool, and then we can just bonus ourselves, you know, ten percent. Um, then we got then we have our ten percent pool. Once we get to the control provisions of a term sheet. Recognize that more likely than not, the investor, whether it's the investors themselves or their board appointee, will have a say on you know whether or not you can grant those options to management. Yeah.
0: We don't want to uh, get everyone all wide-eyed and thinking, well, I'm going to get this big option pool. I'm going to put another 5% in my pocket. Because once you get to a Series A financing, decisions like that will need to be run through a committee or you'll have to get approval from the investor. Those are minority protection rights. And I'm sure they'll be discussed in detail later on in the book. Okay, I wanna talk about two more points, Aaron. One is a quick one, is exercise period. And then let's talk about, let's use what we just talked about to get into anti dilution. So, exercise period is how long you give your employees to exercise their options. And this could be, you know, this could be a valuable negotiating tool with your employees. A lot of times the standard docs just say if you leave the company, we're going to give you 90 days so let's just assume that you did go work for facebook in 2003 and then your mom got sick and you know you need to move home to take care of her and facebook said i don't know if Facebook did this but the company said all right we well, got 90 days to exercise your option well, at that point in time you might not know if the value of the business is there or you might not have the money put together to do it so a shorter option exercise period is pretty aggressive if you had a 10 year option exercise period, now you're giving the employees the ability to leave and go on with their lives, but really still participate in the value of the company if there is significant upside.
1: Right. And these are these are options that employees have earned by, you know, putting in their time. These are options that have vested already. And so, you know, I, I think the view has been oh, well, maybe it's not entirely fair to say. Hey, you've worked here for five years, you've vested a bunch of options, you're leaving. We're all everybody's still happy, you're leaving, you only have 90 days to exercise.
0: I think as companies get bigger, then it's the trend is to extend the option periods or the exercise periods. What you can also do is have different exercise periods for different events, right? If you're terminated with cause, it's different from being terminated without right. cause. So if you're terminated with cause, you might have a, a situation where the company just recaptures the options. Yeah. Or you might have a very narrow or very short option exercise period. If you're terminating without cause, if you're just moving on, or maybe after a couple of years, you can get real exotic with these things, but just understand the exercise period is important. The last thing I want to talk about is anti dilution. And I want to tie this together with podcast four, which was part one of chapter four. Well, we talked about fully diluted basis, right? And what does a fully diluted basis mean? And we gave the example of how a company would want reserved but unissued options to not be included in fully diluted basis, and an investor would. And the reason why an investor wants those things included is because the investor does not want those issuances later diluting them. Now, from an anti-dilution perspective in a term sheet, this is usually dealing with the concept of a down round. So if the company, we've been using a uh, business raising money at $10 million, the, the business raised money at $10 million and these investors invest $5 million to get to a $15 million post money valuation. Let's just say the company doesn't make it. And the next investment round, the company raises, let's just say the company's in really, really bad spot. Okay. Our next investment round, company raises $2 million at a $2 million pre money valuation. So it's a $4 million post money or 50% equity just got given up the other investors who just invested at the larger round are going to get crushed by that dilution. So what the investors want is they want anti-dilution protection. And there's a very complicated formula there on page 64, which is exactly like what we see. This is actually a simpler way of reflecting it. But if you look at the NVCA docs when they talk about anti-dilution, exactly the same formula that we see. And this allows the earlier investors to basically reset their price by getting additional shares to protect them from the anti-dilution.
1: Now, really protect qu- them from the dilution. Really quick, do you want to talk about full ratchet versus yes. weighted average? Yes. Because this formula that's on page 64 is for weighted average calculation. Right. Full ratchet is pretty rare. I don't see it very often. Um, So I think full ratchet is easy. Why don't you explain that? Yeah, full ratchet is, um, you know, say that round one was at $10 per share and now we're doing another round and it's at $2 per share. That means that all of the investors that have invested at the $10 per share, they get more equity so that their original investment reflects a $2 per share. That's price.
0: right. Full ratchet. It's as if they were participating in this round or then participate in terms that had this round. I want to note, you know, Aaron, Aaron talks about per share. I've been talking a lot about valuations. The same thing. If Aaron's at $10 per share and I'm at a $10 million valuation, well, I'm simply talking about a situation where there's million valuation, a million shares. It's $10 per share. You have to get comfortable intertwining those things, but eventually the value is still the same. But yes, so full ratchet, real simple. Then you have your weighted average, which is where they weight your dilution protection depending on where the next round is and where your round was. And then once you get into weighted average, you have broad-based and narrow-based. And remember those concepts we were talking about earlier about whether you include reserved but unissued options? There's a few other nuances there, but that's how you get to your broad based versus narrow based calculations. The vast majority, I think, Aaron, 80, 90% of what we see is broad based weighted average, right? I see full ratchet every once in a while, usually when it's a single investor, not a VC, but more like a high net worth or or like a private equity guy playing in the venture world. We just rarely see full ratchet.
1: Yeah. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think that full ratchet would definitely come into the picture if a company has a history of doing down. Round. Yeah, if they've done one before, then you probably are going to be asking for it.
0: Yeah. If we're investor side, we really don't ask for full ratchet all that often because it's just not market unless a situation like Aaron just explained. If we were a distressed company, have already had a down round, probably would be uh, inappropriate to ask for it there. Okay, let's see, Aaron, I think that covers everything we wanted to cover here. Okay, so that wraps up Office Hours podcast episode five. This was chapter four, the economic terms of the term sheet, part two. Hopefully you checked out part one. If not, you should be able to see it just above or below whatever you're looking at on your mobile device or computer. In closing, I want to make sure you remember that our show notes, uh, which includes references, defined terms related content are on velawoodlaw.com. Go to blog, then podcast, then the Office Hours podcast. Follow us on Twitter at vaylowoodlaw.com. On Instagram at Vela Wood. Questions or comments, email us podcasts at Velawoodlaw.com and remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Five stars. Let's go get lunch. Let's go.
1: Vailawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at